So what I'm gonna give you today, it's um, kind of a new line of my work. Um, so my PhD was on uh, protest, basically, and, and the way which people immobilize the city during protest, and kind of framing that in the history of, of capitalist reorganization in Thailand in the last two decades. Uh, what I'm trying to do now is basically thinking through uh, what the idea of freedom has been uh, applied for in the last 15 years, basically, and how uh, labor is reorganized around the idea of free, free labor, flexible labor. So let me jump directly in and bring you um, to Bangkok for a second. So seen from above, Bangkok resembles an octopus, scarred on its left side by the sinuous bend of the Chao Phraya River and squeezed in the middle with its tentacle distending outward. As you get closer, the urban structure reveals the same tentacular shapes. Large multi-laned roads spread radially, departing from the diffuse central business district where, uh, that clusters around Siam Square, where the city-elevated railway line crosses. Zooming in, the structure of the city starts to break down, and the octopus contort into convoluted and cramped pattern. Long and narrow streets branch out of the major road and conquer the space between them without connecting. At this scale, the street network suggests um, the shape of multiple trees, the results of the road's past life as canals. Long boulevards suddenly hit a maze of small roads. Roundabouts and centrifugal roads shatter against grids of street, expanding from miles into straight, narrow alleys, which end in a fence, a wall, or a parking lot. A few meters away beyond these alleys that you see here um, run identical roads, unreachable. This infuriating topography of Bangkok is the product of multiple attempts to plan, <coughs> reorganize, and remake the city. All there is left, however, is a fragmented overlay that composes the texture of the Thai capital. The same bricolage dominates the architecture of the city. Singaporean shop houses with, mixed with neoclassical cement building with vista onto fake Greek and Roman sculpture. Shanti apartment buildings and dilapidated four stories covered with rusty iron gating. Glass and skyscraper pop up just beside moldering wooden houses on stilt and mono house families, mono family houses. Bangkok residential architecture mixes with both religion, religious and profane buildings. Ubiquitous Buddhist temples seen next to Dutch looking palaces providing all the thrills and pleasure of the red light district of Amsterdam. Small mosque and Portuguese church lie behind shopping center, Chinese shrine, Hindu temples, and massage parlors. On the outskirts of the city, upscale residential complexes, copies of international neighborhood around the world, carrying the name of their original, London, Paris, all the way to the Grand Canal, a Venetian team neighborhood that screamed Las Vegas more than Bangkok. <laughs> At the verge of the city, this gated community mix with Grujayan industrial estates, unfinished townhouses left behind by the 1997 crisis, lush waterways, and swampy rice fields. A crossroad from its origin, Bangkok preserved the thrown-together feeling of a harbor city. So in the morning, this city wakes up slowly. The octopus starts moving from the tips of this tentacle. Workers and, his, and their children flow into the city where most of them work but cannot afford to leave. Small vans, collective taxis and buses ferry the working class throughout the complex maze of radial street and branched, and branched road all the way to the workplaces. Those who can afford to save time 
ride taxi or private car on the underground and elevated mice transit terminus and continue their commute inside air-conditioned trains. People living along the few remaining navigable canal jump on slim longboats and endure the pungent smell of the waterways in exchange for bypassing traffic. Even if the city provides for different location, wallets, and urgencies with multiple forms of transportation, few of them are able to reach deep into the alley where most of Bangkok city dwellers reside. Mobility inside those alleys, too narrow for buses and vans, subway and skytrain, and often clogged with cars, remain largely in the hands of motorcycle taxi drivers. The city is traversed every day by 200,000 of these drivers, most of them internal migrants from the outer provinces. Collectively, they operated between 4 and 6 million trips per day, around 10 times the number of trip travel by Bangkok subway and SkyTrain combined. In this sense, on their back seats, the city keeps moving, even during its infamous traffic jam. These movers of the city are the protagonists of today's talk. While many of them arrive in the city with dreams well beyond allowing its population and commodities to circulate smoothly, they eventually took up this occupation through paths that follow the development of industrial capitalism in Thailand in the last few decades. In particular, the layoff after the 1997 crisis, as well as the refusal of discipline of labor in factories, where migrants normally land once they arrive in the city, push many of them toward their present occupation. If these were the causes that brought them to become motorcycle taxi in the first place, freedom, as many of them like to repeat, is what keeps them into this hectic, stressful, and head-threatening job. While job insecurity, risk of road accidents, and constant inhalation of poisonous fumes are acknowledged by the driver and often left to the protection of amulets and magic tattoo, freedom and independence enjoy a central place in the driver's self-construction as autonomous urban dwellers and successful migrants. As Yai, the president of um, the Association of Motorcycle Taxi of Thailand, which is a, a trade union that I work with extensively, told me, and I quote, Motorcycle taxi drive, die young, but live free, end quote. Freedom, in their view, is the base on which increased job and life insecurity become acceptable and at time desirable. So today, I want to explore this apparent paradox and the driver discourse of freedom and its relation to capitalist restructuring and experience of migration. By doing so, I analyze how, how political, economic, social, and philosophical configuration are emerging in post-crisis Thailand and being accepted under this new discourse of freedom. While the focus is on the specific context of Thailand, along the talk, some point will echo close to home for us, maybe too close to ignore how similar dynamics are actually expanding globally. So maybe in the question and answer, we can explore more that. Um, for now, however, uh, this paradox of freedom is becoming a way to accept and often push the deuralization and increase labor insecurity in contemporary ca capitalism and has been widely analyzed by scholars. Two explanations are normally provided. In the first, dear to Marxist tradition, liberty can become a tool of exploitation. What recreates false consciousness among workers while interpolating them into accepting and participating in the system. So as, as Marx said in the Jewish question, exploring constitutional rights to liberty, and I quote, man was not freed from religion. He received freedom of religion. 
He was not free, freed from property. He received freedom to own property. He was not free, freed from the egoism of business. He received freedom to engage in business, end quote. So similarly, in this reading, freedom is for the driver, or would be for the driver, nothing more than freedom to independently exploit their own labor. In the second explanation, post-structurally in nature, the discourse of freedom as any other episteme creates its own subject, subject that are apt to be governed to a specific context of conduct, in this case to individualized entrepreneurship and flexible labor. So both of these approaches, while invaluable in positioning subject in relation to capitalism, discipline apparatus, and discursive imaginary, miss, however, the personal dimension of the driver inclusion in those structures, their decision to partake in them, or their refusal to do so. This explanation fails, in short, to answer one basic question, namely, why do people accept to be part of a hegemonic system or to be interpolated in them? The vocabulary of hailing and interpolation, alongside that of subject formation, in fact, reduce the mechanism through which participation is obtained to brainwashing the so-called false consciousness or brain shaping under the name of subject formation, effectively dismissing any validity of these people's participation. Today, instead, I want to take the driver's claim to freedom seriously and ask, why do they decide to leave formal job or not go back to formal job in factories for the free life of job insecurity. What do these migrants actually mean by freedom? And what can we learn about the operation of contemporary capitalism by analyzing this discourse among them? In order to answer this question, I first explored the driver adoption of the discourse of freedom to motivate their decision to enter this occupation. I analyze how this decision did provide them with liberty of movement, both in the city and in the villages, as well as independence from urban industrial discipline of labor. Yet at the same time, I reveal how this decision has taken away job security by inscribing the drivers into a post for this flexibilization of labor market that has dominated Thailand since the crisis. In this sense, I do not celebrate the drivers as free agents, or see them as cogs in larger machinery. Rather, I reflect and reconstruct the dialectical relation between emancipation and hegemony by stressing both the contradiction and the actual advantages of post for this freedom. By doing so, I reveal the shortfalls, both political and analytical, of considering freedom, as both liberal and Marxist tradition have done, as an absolute category. Rather, following Wendy Brown, I show how the driver's discourse of freedom is fle inflexible self-employment. The same discourse echoed by millions of workers around the world is actually contextual. And, in, this and in, in the context, this discourse does provide emancipation from the discipline of Fordist industrial production, while also framing a new cage of the post-Fordist world, which take the form of reduced labor security and atomized entrepreneurship. So before I get lost in my own theoretical ranting, let me bring you back to Banker for a second and introduce you to one of these drivers who will help us trace the trajectory that many of them go through. Born in a small village in Udon provinces, a few miles away from the Laotian border, Adun arrived in Bangkok in 1979 at the age of 15, or as he planned to wait time as soon as he got his ID. He came to the city and spent his first month walking to his job in a, shoe, in a small shoe shop because he didn't know how to jump onto a bus that stopped only for a few seconds in front of his door, he says. 
As soon as he accumulated a few hundred baht, he went back to the village, homesick. Desires for a stable income and a different life, however, rapidly brought him back to Bangkok. He worked in jewelry polishing, construction, furniture making, only to land finally in a small chemical factory. In his seasonal trip back to his village, he got married, had children, but never managed to move his family to Bangkok because of the high material and emotional cost of of raising his kids away from land, family, and the the village school. After a few years in Bangkok, Adun got to know a group of motorcycle taxis from his provinces operating close to his factory. Saving up a little money, he brought a battered motorcycle and started to work with them as an after-hours driver. Soon, Adun realized that this job offered him a renewed freedom. During these hours, he had no boss to order him around. It was not, however, until 1988, 1998, right after he lost his job as a result of the financial crisis, the Adun became a full-time motorcycle taxi driver. After some harsh year of economic stagnation, the new job allowed him to bring home a better salary and to go freely back and forth from, his vi- from the city to his village for rice plowing, sewing, transplanting, and harvesting. In these trips, Adun, like many other drivers around him, was able to reclaim a central role in the economic and social life of his rural family and village, a role that, that they had lost during the years of working in factories. Adun was particularly outspoken and articulate about the importance of freedom to his personal choices. Sitting on a street corner, he told me, my family and I am, are happy with this job. It is a free life. You can come and go from home anytime. You can get money fast, every day without waiting for the end of the month for the salary to come in. I have freedom, independence. What is freedom, I asked. I can go home whenever I want. I don't have to take leave. I don't have to ask anyone. I don't have to come to work. I can remain home if I get sick or I get drunk the night before. If I earn enough money of the day and I want to go home to sleep, I just do that. This is freedom. I used to work for a company. I went home often and I was never promoted. I had to go back home to the village very often. My family is there, my farm is there. This is an advantage for people like me who still have land and family back in the countryside. I like my job because it's free. I was offered to go back to work in my company and, um, and I refused because that is a bad job in Bangkok for countrymen like me. The boss always looked down on you, always ordered you around, always insult you. The last place I worked, the boss's son kept insulting me, shouting at me. A 20-year-old kid with no experience, just gotten out of university. I could not accept that. I, w- I am happy now. I am my own boss, end quote. So similar exchanges repeated with minimal variation hundreds of times over the course of my research. Through the idiom of freedom, the drivers claimed their human and economic independence from the crushing machine of industrial capitalism and its organization of labor. In order to understand this claim, therefore, it is fundamental to to dissect what freedom means to them and what role this concept plays in sustaining the driver's professional decision and their inscription in the logic of post-Fordist capitalism in Thailand. So let me start from the first dimension and analyze analyze how freedom operates both as a motivation for the driver to remain in this line of work and as a source of pride and personal dignity. Adun's depiction of freedom is twofold. 
on one hand, he conceived this as a form of autonomy from the factory discipline of labor that infantilizes him, dehumanizes him, and forces him to subdue participation to his family and agricultural life to the wish of his boss. On the other hand, he talks about freedom to go back home whenever he wants, to organize his own schedule, and ultimately to be his own boss. This duality is pivotal for the drivers. In this sense, this conception of freedom echoed with that of the British political philosopher Isaiah Berlin, who has argued for a double understanding of freedom as both positive and negative. It is in double territory of positive freedom as freedom to and negative freedom as freedom from that the drivers sustain their commitment to their occupation. So in order to understand what this commitment entails in both the drivers' everyday life and their political economic position in Thailand, we need to investigate um, what are the limitations to which they reacted once they made this decision? So let me start in this sense from the concept of negative freedom. Hadun, as many other drivers, moved to Bangkok from an agricultural village where occasional and sporadic wage labor complemented the more regular yet seasonal work in the fields. In both of these spheres, that of wage and agricultural labor, their activity in the villages were organized according to a social hierarchy and relation that went beyond the classic factory floor organization and division of labor. Back home, age, family relation, acquired expertise, and status provided a social hierarchy in and beyond the labor process, which appeared more transparent and navigable compared to the division of labor in urban factories when they often land once they move in the city. This does not mean that the village offers some mythological space of pre-capitalist production or equitable production, as the drivers, as well as many other larger dominant discourse in Thai society, seems to um, imply. Nor does it mean that economic class, bureaucratic titles, and administrative role play, ranks play no role in the village. Rather, and more concretely, all of these social relations and interaction tending to proceed and extend beyond the labor transaction. In other words, disciplined labor there could not take the form of direct and frontal dismissal, attack, and scolding, if not at the risk of jeopardizing social standing for both the employer and the employee. Very different is the matter in the anonymity of urban production in Bangkok. Here, both of the actors involved have nothing at stake in the preservation of good relationship with the specific worker or employer beyond keeping their working arrangement running. While this configuration offers a respite from the expectation and the localized and intimate social hierarchy that orient labor in the village, it also creates a space in which disdain, scorn, and open derision come to color the relationship between workers and employers in the city. To make things worse, worse for rural migrants in Thailand, a deeply rooted bias against them among Bangkokians often orients this already uneven interaction in factories. In particular, the discourse of the backward and stupid villager provide a framework onto which the relation between urban employer and rural employees is understood and experienced. A failure to adjust to the factory organization of labor is accepted, justified, and exacerbated to this lens by both the migrant worker and the urban employer. This failure, when it occurs, is often framed in the dehumanizing language with compares migrants, especially males, to water buffalo, the quintessentially rural, stubborn, and stupid animal. In this sense, 
this, their occupation as motorcycle taxi, even if taken up as a result of convoluted trajectory and layoff, offers a step away from a system of control and discrimination experienced on the factory floor. In a Dilton's world, being a motorcycle taxi driver provides relative freedom from such form of discipline, a stigma. Through their work, the driver acquire a new form of independence that resonates with classic liberal philosopher as freedom from oppression. Adun, in this sense, echoed Hobbes and his understanding of a free man as, and I quote, he that is not hindered to do what he has the will to do. One question, however, remains, what it is that drivers have a will to do? This brings us to the second aspect of freedom voiced by the drivers, namely positive freedom or freedom too. I don't frame positive freedom in two large spheres. First, the freedom to decide if and when to work, and therefore to claim ownership over his own life, income, and daily rhythms. Secondly, the freedom to leave the city and go back to his village where his family resides and where his fields are, whenever he wants or needs to. Both of these forms of freedom, in other words, could be seen as a demand to live a less alienated life. In the first case, as a refusal of the alienated labor of the factory form, and a reclaiming of control over his own body and time. And second, a demand to this participation in his family and village life that has been threatened by regional migration and capitalist organization of labor. So to recap, until now I analyzed the driver's recourse to freedom to motivate and justify their decision to take up their occupation. <laughs> I showed how their use of two distinct yet often overlapping meaning of freedom as freedom form and freedom too offered them an opportunity to move toward higher form of fulfillment and, di and dignity in self-employment. Freedom, as described by Adun, operate on a personal level as a construct that helps the driver making sense of their own labor trajectory, as well as claiming agency over their life. However, not all that glitters is gold. The discourse of freedom, in fact, while offer emancipatory opportunity, also lures the drivers into consenting to a post-crisis restructuring of, of Thai capitalism toward increasing flexible and insecure form of labor. The discourse of freedom, in fact, does not only operate on the personal and emancipatory level that I have so far analyzed. Apparently, potentially oppress the oppressive discourse of free and flexible labor spread, especially after the crisis, across Thailand. In this hegemonic project, freedom became a way to push an increased number of unnecessary industrial workers toward more free and less protected form of employment, such as those of motorcycle taxi drivers. So in order to fully understand this shift, it is therefore necessary to go beyond the significance of freedom to the driver as an experiential emancipatory force and position it in a dialectic tension with larger political economic analysis and its role as an hegemonic construct. Failing to do so would mean, in the word of Elie Lefebvre, and I, and I quote, taking experience partes tra partes. It would shed light on small areas of it, appropriating them for its own device and transforming them into a private plot of land rather than grasping the landscape and the horizon as an ensemble, end quote. It is only by analyzing all three scales, plot, landscape, and horizon, in their, and their mutual interaction, something that both Marxist and post-structural analysis fail to do, that any observation can actually be complete. 
while, while until now I have analyzed a Hadoon plot of land, in the second part of this talk, I will attempt to grasp the landscape in which this plot exists and addressing the horizon of the driver engagement with that landscape. So in order to do this, we need to put um, the diffusion of this discourse of freedom in conjunction with a major restructuring of the Thai economy since the 1997 crisis. Away from industrial production, unionized labor, and collective bargaining toward new form of flexible and um, informal self-employment. So just to quickly put you, give you a sense of the context in which the, the crisis happened. In the late 1980s and the early 1990s, Southeast Asian economies experienced a period of unprecedented growth, led by a massive influx of foreign capital and a realignment of national economies toward export-oriented industrialization. Between 1986 and 1996, Thailand GDP grew faster than any other nation in the world. In these 10 years, the country experienced an average growth rate of 9.5% per year, with a peak of 13.3% in 1988. Simultaneously, the volume of exported good rose at a yearly, yearly average of 14.8%. All this came to a stop in 1997. On May 14 and 15 of that year, the Thai bath was hit by a massive speculative attack. Driven by the ease with which capital moved in and out of the country and the increased stability of the national economy, this speculation became the spark that ignited the Asian financial crisis. In a few days, the Thai currency lost most, most of its value. Sadly, most Thai companies that borrow in foreign currencies so their debt burden doubled in a few days. A significant number of these companies went into bankruptcy. Thailand's booming economy came to a halt amid extensive layoffs in finance, real estate, industry, and construction. Migrant workers reacted either by returning to agricultural land, which always offers a security net in time of economic recession, or by inducing a massive informalization of labor. Motorcycle taxi was one of the markets that received uh, a lot of these laid-off workers. So the growth of their rank was stark, stark in those years. In 1994, Bangkok was traversed by about 35,000 of them. By 2003, their number had, exp had expanded almost threefold to 110,000. Beyond motorcycle taxi drivers, the 1997 crisis reconstructed Thai labor market and form of capitalist accumulation. They shifted from a Fordist model that privileged direct control over industrial and labor-intensive mass production to a pause for this phase, dominating by flexible labor and self-employment, mostly in services. What this meant for millions of workers, including the drivers, was the reduction of fixed contract and the expansion of occupation not protected by any form of social security or labor rights. In this shift, the discourse of freedom played a central role in providing both incentive and an ideology that justify the flexibilization of labor, self-employment, and its growing insecurity, making it acceptable and bearable to workers, including motorcycle taxi drivers. This does not mean that this discourse was solely inhaling into post-fortist ideology, and that this shift did not, as we saw, offer actual significant advantages when compared to the previous condition of labor. Rather, new contextual freedom while allowing new possibility, also actually started to build this new cage around the drivers and millions of other workers. 
This occurred not despite those advantages, but pre precisely because of them, as they allowed to frame flexible and insecure labor not only as acceptable, but as desiderable to the driver, a form of labor that defined itself in opposition with the factory labor they experienced before the crisis. So a similar dynamic has directed capitalist restructuring that is spreading around Thailand as much as around the world and eroding art for job security and rights. Many people around the, the world, actually, including many of us, has accept, have accepted self-employment and flexible labor as a recovery independence from the tyranny and dullness of fixed casual job, only to find ourselves inside the protect, outside the protective net of welfare state, retirement scheme, and permanent jobs. If we acquire renewed freedom by becoming our own bosses and being able to mold our working hours to family arrangement of personal preferences, most definitely so. If we, at the same time, accepted a retreat of both government and our employer's uh, duty to provide basic service and security, absolutely. So the question is, how is this paradox possible? Here Gramsci can come to our rescue by clarifying how freedom and control can sustain each other. And now an emancipating personal discourse of freedom, such as the one voiced by the drivers, can also sustain an exploitative form of hegemony that make drivers willingly accept reduced job security and limited services, as, again, many of us. In his prison writing, Gramsci elucidated how control over social group could take two forms, domination and hegemony. While the first one is obtained to, a con to the coercive organs of the state, the second, in his word, entails an intellectual and moral leadership that is exercised through civil society. The second form of submission, according to him, operates through, and I quote, a spontaneous consent given by great masses of the population to the general direction imposed in social life by a dominant fundamental group. Consent historical cause, historically caused by the prestige and therefore the trust accruing to this dominant group. So the question here becomes, who was this group in Thailand? How was this consent built? and how to go about answering the question we start with, namely, why did people accept it to be part of this hegemonic project? In order to answer this question, we need to go back to Thailand right after the 1997 crisis and analyze the country's reaction to it. After the economic downfall, the new government of Chualikpai applied IMF suggestion to the latter, opening the country to foreign investors, cutting inve uh, spending in particular through social services, and increasing taxes with the purpose of stabilizing national financial market, very similar reci recipe to the austerity measures that are being adopted today in Southern Europe, with equally disastrous effect. The plan ensured that foreign lenders would be repaid, but it proved disastrous for the country and its economic sovereignty. By the year 2000, recovery, recovery was simply not on the way, which, again, might sound quite similar to us. The following year, Taksin Shinawatra became prime minister, and a new phase of Thai capitalism began to take form. Taksin was elected in the January of 2001 with a solid majority and an ambitious plan to reform Thai economy and society. Contrary to IMF prescription, Taksin predicated a significant expansion of the state role in promoting economic growth and managing social consequences. 
At the core of his vision was the expansion of capitalism through state intervention, application of the logic of management to public administration, and the, and re the redefining of citizens as entrepreneurs, while providing them with easy access to credit. The system revolved around five main policies that were implemented during the first six months of his premiership. <coughs> first, a rural debt moratorium, a village urban community fund, um, the creation of a people's bank, the one tambun one product scheme, and the universal healthcare um, coverage. The debt moratorium allowed farmers and urban workers to postpone their repayment to the Bank of Agriculture and Agricultural Cooperative, while the village fund created a revolving fund for villages and urban communities to be used to provide cheap loans, promote local community building, and stimulate the entry of farmer and urban poor into the capitalist economy. More largely, the People Bank funded low-income uh, investment in micro-businesses, while the One Tambun One product provided government-led guidances to these uh, businesses. Finally, and most successfully, the universal healthcare system, popular no and the Thirty Bat scheme, provided low-income citizens with afford affordable health assistance. Overall. The system was aimed at fostering universal participation in capitalism by protecting small businesses and low-income entrepreneurs from unexpected difficulties, such as outstanding debt, lack of credit, or health expenses. As Taksin himself declared, the, the aim was, and I'm quoting here, to create a new class of entrepreneurs that could marry local skill with international technology and hence move up the value chain, end quote. Among these entrepreneurs in taxi wards, actually, were motorcycle taxi drivers, a new free labor force that decided to live in this discourse, the shackle of, of dependent occupation, to enter the brand new world of self-employment and entrepreneurship. His reference to them was not casual. Many of the drivers had belonged to the industrial working class that was drastically cut down by the crisis and have suffered under the IMF attempts to recovery. As a result, they figure prominently among taxi constituency and electoral force and electoral machine, actually, and found this discourse of entrepreneurship as a useful way to frame both their previous difficulties in the industrial discipline of labor and their actual demand to freedom. So in a sense, they were able, through this discourse, to push back the idea, oh, you don't succeed in industrial labor because you're lazy, uh, by saying, no, we don't succeed because actually we're entrepreneurs, so we shouldn't work in that system. The drivers, in other words, in their shift from the factory floor to the road, had moved from workers to entrepreneurs, acquire emancipation from a specific discipline of labor, as well as the possibility, as we saw, to uh, have a part in their village lives. However, by becoming their own bosses, they also became their own exploiters. After all, in a society where everybody is a capitalist and an entrepreneur, no one is exploiting anybody, as everybody is sacrificing their, their own time to build their own human capital. Um, in this sense, overworking or uh, long hour or not being able to actually go and see a doctor become a form of investing into yourself. So interestingly, however, at the same time as Taksin attempt to free entrepreneurial forces from the shackle of the fixed job, he also immediately proceed to control their flows effectively poising limits to this free entrepreneurship. 
Early in his first premiership, in fact, the driver's operation in the city were registered, archived, and put under control. The registration of motorcycle taxi was a central piece in a larger government campaign known as the War, War on Dark Influence. The Star Wars definition was adopted to refer to a variety of intervention which attempted to bring different sectors of the illegal and informal economy, from logging to prostitution, from underground lotto to motorcycle taxi operation, under the administrative and economic control of the government, include them into the formal market and provide assistance to its entrepreneurs. More largely, this campaign represented test for the new approach to low-income economic actors proposed by the Prime Minister. In his vision, this entrepreneurship had been constrained by structural conditions for too long. It was now time to expand capitalism through its promotion and protection under the umbrella of the state. This idea of extending the scope of capitalism in Thailand by formalizing underground economy and protecting its entrepreneurs Push, uh, was predicated upon the theories of Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto and was introduced in mm-hmm. Thailand um, actually by, in a meeting between Taksin and Bill Clinton. The war on dark, on dark influence and the formalization of thriving informal economies was a central piece of this mosaic. First, it represented an attempt to include informal economy into the formal market and secondly, it marked the fight over visibility, control and ultimately taxability of these markets. Like many contemporary states who argue for the regulation and free market while also tithing control on the porosity of their border, during this period, the Thai government pushed its workers toward toward free and flexible form of labor while registering and making them visible and therefore controllable. Motorcycle taxi became a showcase of this new approach, giving their centrality to the daily lives of the urban dwellers in the city and their relative ease to actually regulating their flow. Less than a year after De Soto had visited Thailand and proposed this regularization, Taksin initiated um, a registration of the drivers in May of 2003. By late August, the government decided to give new yellow license plate to bikes for public use and distribute new vests to the drivers. Vest which will operate as personal license and, in theory, provide legalized assets to be transformed into capital and used as, colla- as collateral in loans. Clearly, no banks would ever accept a vest as collateral, actually, in the long run, so that, that went out of the picture quite fast. Now the drivers were made entrepreneurs, free to work endless hours with no security and cage into this new system of registration and control. Boone, one of the drivers who operated around Bangkok's financial area, was very much aware of of this paradox and refused, and still refused today, to put on uh, one of the government official vests and to register with the local administration. I chose this job because it gave me freedom. I'm not going to willingly give them my name and location so to be under state control, he told me from behind his conspicuous mustaches. Boone Adamant's reaction, however, was little more than an exception. Most of the drivers, in fact, saw the registration as a final recognition of their role in the city and their business acumen. For the first time, in their view, they acquired visibility and formal recognition as significant actors in the life of the city, stakeholders in the urban system and in the Thai state, as well as free, legitimate entrepreneurs rather than good-to-nothing lazy, lazy country banking as many Bangkok can see them. 
By framing the drivers as entrepreneurs, Bangkok reform offered them protection and conceptualized them as independent actors who needed to mobilize the dormant assets rather than as workers in need for government support. In this sense, this policy contributed to build up both the idea and the practice of motorcycle taxi as free career, while by framing them as entrepreneurs, it connected their individual success or failure to personal action rather than structural relation. Such framing of the drivers as free entrepreneurs revealed the complex relation in post-40 Thailand between emancipatory impulses and hegemonic control. On one side, the vision of the drivers as entrepreneurs depoliticized exploitation and social inequality by reframing them as individual success or failure to actually live up to their own decision in, in the labor process. On the other side, it provides the driver, and it does provide them, with recognition, pride, and a sense of dignity in their decision to escape the industrial discipline of labor that they frame as their attempt to gain freedom. So to conclude, as so far the analysis of the driver's discourse of freedom and its relation to capitalist restructure in post-crisis Thailand has brought us to two apparent paradoxes. Firstly, the paradox of using freedom to motivate the acceptance of less secure labor arrangement. Secondly, the paradox of alleging free entrepreneurship while putting them under close state control. These apparent paradoxes, in fact, frame the operation of contemporary capitalism in and beyond Thailand. The system, in other words, seems to work like electricity by constant moving from an opposite to the other, bringing them together, and by gaining force out of this difference of potential. In this specific case, this means allowing flows and activity only insofar as they can be transformed into legible and controllable aggregated flows. More largely, this means using freedom to cage workers. In a sense, however, the paradox that we saw here should not come as a surprise, as they're not just typical of migrant drivers, drivers as many as many other workers around the world. Rather, they stand at the very core of contemporary capitalism and actually of the thinking on some of the thinkers who help shape the contemporary moment. Think, for instance, of Jeremy Bentham, who simultaneously developed a political theory of self-interest liberal subject and proposed technique of administering the social whole through discipline and surveillance. This paradox, moreover, lie at the very center of the question which directed this exploration, namely why do people accept or are interpolated into being part of an hegemonic system, be the system nation-state, uh, dictatorship, or capitalist structures? As we saw, traditional Marxism has solved these paradoxes through the idea of full consciousness and post-structuralism through the process of subject formation. In this sense, they both attempt to give a general answer to a question that, as I try, as I try to show, requi requires a contextual analysis and therefore a contextual answer. Here I'm arguing that once we abandon this, this generality and enter into the contextual field, not only we can provide an answer to this question, as Gramsci would have done, by actually analyzing this con the contextual environment, an answer that does not entail people being duped, but more largely we end up revealing this paradox as actually a lot less contradictory than they seem to be. Let me start from the second one, the paradox of free enterprise and tighter control. Presenting this as a contradiction has been one of the main misunderstandings of studies of neoliberalism. 
As Gavin Smith, among many other have shown, and I quote, under capitalism, the impetus to increase productivity mm -hmm. generates a tension having to do with the enhancement of the creative potential of people and its harnessing, which need enclosure that captures the value that results from this operation and directs it back toward capital. So in other words, the fruit of labor are of no, are of no use unless they flow, their flows can be channeled. And in a way, if we go back to early theories of capitalism, they were, of neoliberalism, they were actually saying this. They were saying that this was a need for state intervention. Um, <coughs> in other words, quite, quite clearly, once we look at the specific clay, case, free enterprise needed a tight control both to flourish and to be aggregated into a significant flow of capital and people. Mm. So let me move now to the larger apparent paradox that is um, that in which two uses of freedom as worker emancipation from discipline of labor and as a hegemonic justification for labor restructuring operate side by side in the minds and everyday life of the drivers. At first, this idea seems contradictory. After all, we're used to understand freedom as the opposite of control and hegemony, as its arch enemy and not its ally. This understanding, however, emerged only because we tend to implicitly understand freedom as a universal and absolute category beyond time and space. In this view, any form of freedom that does not achieve decontextualized liberation in, is incomplete and failing to live up to the, to the idea of freedom with the big F. This vision, I agree, I argue, limits our ability to understand the driver's attitude, as well as that of millions of other work, workers around the world, without basically considering them unable to understand their own situation, to read it, and to act upon it. On the contrary, as Wendy Brown has argued, freedom is neither a philosophical attribute nor a tangible entity, but a relational and contextual practice that keep and that take shape in opposition to whatever is locally and ideologically at the time conceived as unfreedom. For the drivers, for this discipline of labor was, around the time of the crisis, the epitome of unfreedom, and post this capitalism offer a way out of that. Failing to understanding this, therefore, not only prevents us from appreciating the local and historical character of freedom while limiting perception of what kind of domination is actually enacted by these practices, as Wendy Brown has argued, but also does not allow us to go back and answer this very basic question, meaning how do these people participate in the system by not considering them unable, again, to actually understand what's going on in their life. Once we abandon this abstract idea of freedom, and the answer of this in the specific cases in which we look actually is quite simple. It is because they understand freedom and emancipation as contextual practices and processes. The personal freedom obtained by moving towards self-employment are not illusory in this sense, nor full consciousness, nor a product of subject formation, but in fact make a difference in their life, allowing them to work in the city without cutting themselves off from village life. For the drivers, being their own bosses and being able to participate in this life was emancipatory from the fourth discipline of labor and brought an advantage to them. At the same time, it configured new cages um, in the regime of individualized flexible labor that has emerged and has been um, pushed through this discourse. In this sense, the driver, as any of us, always navigate between binds claiming personal freedom while accepting to participate 
uh, imposed for this notion of flexible labor. Once we take this contextual understanding, freedom for the driver is both an emancipating demand for activities outside the dictate of capital and a form of governmentality, a mode of exercising power to which government and capitalist forces produce citizens that are best suited to, actua- to the application of their policies. In this case, policies which promote unsafe and flexible labor, which are expanded both in Thailand and practically everywhere around the globe where increasingly, as Nicola Rose has argued, the ethic of freedom has come to underpin our conception of how we should be ruled, how our practice of everyday life should be organized, and how we should understand ourselves and our predicament. So in this sense, it's important to actually ask this question without necessarily going back to this abstract idea that doesn't allow us to actually read what people are doing in these processes. So failing to understand the contextual nature of these processes, therefore, run the risk of either refusing the validity of millions of people's claim to freedom, or equally dangerously, recycling and restating rather than transforming the term of domination that is waged through this concept. In this sense, this analysis here proposed provide a contextual diagnostic for the operation of hegemonic constructs that are expanded globally and they need our participation to continue to exist.